Hey everyone, it is fall, which means it's National Novel Writing Month season, aka NaNoWriMo. And if you don't know about NaNoWriMo, it is a challenge to write 50,000 words of your story in the month of November. That's 30 days. And we believe that a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife. And here are two things to think about in order to encourage you to sign up for NaNoWriMo. One, it's kind of like a writing boot camp. It trains you to be the writer by having you show up every day to write and to reach for a goal. But then it's also a rollicking writing community. We have a thousand volunteers around the world who organize in-person writing events, and we're basically everywhere on the internet. It's a galvanizing force to feel that the whole world is writing with you, and it's free. So all you have to do is go to nanorimo.org and sign up. It's like signing up for any social media profile. And then get ready to write on November 1st. I'll see you there. Hello, collaborators, co-authors, and potential co-authors, literary partners, and partnerships. I'm Brooke Warner here, as always, with my co-host and partner, Grant Faulkner. What a treat, Grant, this week. We have Helen McDonald and Sin Blaché on the show. And these are two authors who met online back in 2009 over a shared love of fan fiction and nurtured a friendship that ended up resulting in collaborating on a project during COVID that ended up being a co-authored book. And here we are. So we're going to chat today about co-authoring. I think it's an important topic as we're heading into November and NaNoWriMo. And in order to do this, it takes a real meeting of the hearts and minds, I think. I've actually co-authored a couple books with Linda Joy Myers, who I teach with, and we know each other intimately, which makes that relationship possible. Um, you have to know each other and you have to find a cohesive voice. Uh, and those projects are fun to do, but they're also very different uh, than doing my own books. And so I, I'm glad that we're opening up this topic of co-authoring. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I'm, I'm always super curious about process when it comes to co-authoring, especially when it comes to novels, because I, I've written all of my fiction by myself, but I have written screenplays with others. And, and somehow I think writing a screenplay with another, it, it, to me, it feels very natural because you're, you're moving things along through a back and forth of dialogue. So just being in that spirit of, of swapping lines with somebody kind of, kind of feeds into the script and the plot and everything. I'm especially intrigued by this collaboration between Helen and Sin because Sin has said that the collaborative spirit and uh, and playful creative spirit they learned from NaNoWriMo influenced their work with Helen. And so, Brooke, I'm curious, when you co-authored with Linda Joy, how did you share your work and what were some of the bigger decisions you made along the way that made things possible? Yeah, and the one that stands out is Breaking Ground on Your Memoir in part because we chose to use the we voice for much of the book and it's nonfiction and it's about memoir writing. Uh, so it's different from that cohesive voice. Like you were saying, you'd have to have for fiction and that sin and Helen do so well in this book profit. Uh, but when one of us wanted or needed to make a point, we decided that we would say, you know, Brooke always says that. So it was writing about ourselves in the third person. That was quite awkward, I'll say, you know, to write. But of course, the end result is what matters. And it did work. It would be we this, we this, you know, Linda Joy this, Brooke this, and and that's kind of how it played out. Uh, we would just pass the file back and forth rather than working on it simultaneously. And I think, obviously, Google Docs has just created a whole new access point for people to work collaboratively, and you can be anywhere in the world, which is super cool. But of course, process is a big deal. And Grant, when you've done this kind of collaborative writing, Writing or when you did your screenplay, what was that experience like for you? I mean, was it collaborative or was there more of an aspect of divide and conquer? 
Yeah, the first time I co-authored anything was this screenplay that I wrote years and years ago with my now wife, Heather Mackey. We weren't married then. Um, and we literally just sat on a couch with a laptop perched on one of our laps and we swapped ideas back and forth while the other one typed. And, you know, it's as I said earlier, it's it's really nice uh, writing a screenplay together because you can riff on each other's ideas in real time. You don't have to write a lot of bulky text or description because you're relying on the camera to do a lot of that. And then and then a script, of course, most scripts are very dialogue heavy. So you can just kind of keep the dialogue moving. Uh, and that kind of helps to have a partner to, to do that with you. But since then, I've co-written and co-edited a lot of things, not fiction, but nonfiction uh, via Google Docs. And that can work really well. And I think we've all been trained as a type of collaborator these days just because of technology. But I think it, I think it helps if there's an in-person component. You know, I've, 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 I've heard of people who, who've written novels together who literally alternate chapters. And in fact, uh, one of the first times I heard of people collaborating on a novel, it was a, a husband and wife team who wrote romances and they'd alternate chapters. So I think they'd, they'd tell like each chapter was from a different character's point of view. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting take too. And one of the things I love about Helen and Sin's story is that it's kind of emblematic of things that were happening during COVID. And I read in one story that Helen would often say when someone asked them that uh, what they were going to write next, I'm going to write a gay sci-fi romance novel. And then everybody laughed it off. But of course, they were serious. And it turned out to be the project that was destined for collaboration with Sin. And it's just cool. Like they knew each other for 10 years before they started working on the project. Uh, and then they shared these similar sensibilities and tastes. And Grant, we're going to hear from Sin uh, about having written for many years during NaNoWriMo. Uh, but I'm curious how common collaboration is in NaNoWriMo. I mean, do you see it a lot, hear about it from writers who participate? Yeah, it really interests me how I hear about more and more people writing novels together each year in NaNoWriMo. So I think it's becoming a, a much more common thing. And and I don't know if this is because of the advent of Google Docs. I also know a lot of other writing softwares have collaborative features, so technology definitely plays a role. But I think there's also just something intrinsic about NaNoWriMo that invites collaboration. And I always say that we break down the mythology of the solitary writer because we bring people together to write, you know, whether it's on a, on a Discord server or at a write-in in a cafe or a library. And if you go to a write-in, you'll often see people asking others for input in real time and banding about story ideas. So I do think that a lot of people, you know, have the experience that Sin did. Um, NaNoWriMo is a training ground for collaborative writing. And I think having a playful and open spirit helps because collaborative writing follows, you know, I think of it as following that principle of dramatic improv. You have to say yes and to another's idea and then just go with it. Well, yeah, and the book they wrote is really ambitious and intricately plotted. Uh, I didn't quite make it through profit before this episode, but almost because I was listening to the audiobook as I love to do, and it's 17 hours. Um, but I am a good way through it, and it's super compelling, different, and original. Uh, and Grant, I didn't want to end this episode without talking to you a little bit about nostalgia. Um, in fact, I thought nostalgia should be the theme of the show, but co-authoring felt a little bit more practical for where we are in the year. Uh, and still, you know, this book is so much about nostalgia and specifically about weaponizing nostalgia uh, just quickly because I think it's so interesting. You know, the idea uh, behind the book, which is called Profit, is that Profit is using people's nostalgia against them. And it's showing up in it's a being 
right? But it's showing up in a tangible form. Uh, and so early in the story, for instance, a 1950s style American diner appears out of nowhere in the middle of a field. And that's when we find out that Ed Gibbons, who loves Americana uh, and American diners, has sort of conjured this thing up. And when he goes to the site, he dies. You know, the experience of nostalgia literally kills him. And I share all this because it's a wild ride of a story. And also because we've had other authors on the show over the years who've harnessed nostalgia for their fiction. I'm thinking of Jinu Chong, the author of Flux, uh, whose references in his fiction were all about 80s pop culture, things like Knight Rider and Back to the Future. And then Leslie Tenorio, who wrote the book, uh, The Son of Good Fortune, and also harnessed some nostalgic themes about B films and American pop culture. And nostalgia is just such a great topic, Grant. I know you love it too. And <laughs> as we're getting closer to November and thinking about NaNoWriMo, uh, I thought it would be good to do a little exercise or rather fun to do a thought exercise. Uh, like what would be the one nostalgic thing that each of us would center a novel on for NaNoWriMo? Oh, I love this as a, as a, as just a good activity conversationally, but also just to think about what you want to write about and write a novel about. Cause I think nostalgia does play a huge role in the way we think about the world. And as you said, I'm very nostalgically inclined to the point that I think I'm genetically wired to be nostalgia. I'm, I'm the <laughs> nostalgic person in, in my family. And a big part of me just wants to sit around and think about the past with yearning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I was telling my kids recently how when I was in school, which I, I love to do this with them because that, you know, they are very much internet kids and iPhone kids. And we didn't have that when I was in high school. And we had to literally sometimes go out and look for people, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> physically in the world, go on searches for them. And the, the main way that this took place was in the form of scooping the loop, as we called it in my small town. And so on, on any evening of the week, if you went up to the center of town, the town square, the main street through town would be full of teens driving their cars just back and forth endlessly while listening to music and yelling out to people and stopping to talk and swapping gossip and figuring out if there was a party somewhere or just cooking up something to do. And it was wonderful because we were on a search and we were together in cars and we were creating and telling stories. So if I was going to write a novel for NaNoWriMo based on nostalgia, I think I'd center a novel in, in scooping the loop because it always produced drama. And if you've seen movies like Dazed and Confused or American Graffiti, it has a type of behavior or, or, or activity like scooping the loop. So anyway, <laughs> that's mine. I'm curious what yours would be, Brooke. Well, I love scooping the loop. I've never heard that term before, and it's it would also make a great book title. Uh, so I was thinking about this. For me, I think I would try my hand at fanfic. And the thing that comes to mind for nostalgia uh, is the sound of music. So I could do a speculative fiction about the sound of music. And so when I think about my childhood, I mean, I watched that movie over and over and over again. And when I hear the songs, it brings me right back to an era like between nine and 11. Uh, and so I was thinking a modern day take on the Von Trapp family and about Maria. And what would their experience be like if instead of the Third Reich being a threat to their dad, it's that they only have a mom and it's the American Supreme Court that's the threat. Mm. And Maria arrives and falls in love with the mom. And then the Von Trapps have to navigate all the challenges of American politics in the modern age. <laughs> I think I could have a lot of fun with that story. Yeah, you can have more than fun. I think you've got to write it, Brooke. Um, <laughs> I love this twist on The Sound of Music. And um, fan fiction could have been a topic for this week, too, because Helen and Sin are fan fiction writers. Helen loves uh, Star Wars, and they bonded over fan fiction online. And actually, you know, when when you think of it, fan fiction, 
uh, a lot of it is fundamentally collaborative writing because you're expanding on an author's existing story in new ways. And, and fanfic communities are all about sharing your work on ripping and ripping on others' work. So it's, it's no surprise that a lot of NaNoWriMo writers write fanfiction. And I think, you know, fanfiction is also just very playful by nature and it invites rule breaking and rule transforming as your story uh, already shows. So I'm definitely a fan of all those characteristics and I'm looking forward to this new version of The Sound of Music. <laughs> I'll definitely save the idea for some future point when I have more time to just play, you know, when I'm using NaNoWriMo to have fun and even collaborate, uh, which I hope a lot of our listeners will do. So I'm excited to talk about a lot of these themes with our guests, co-authors Helen McDonald and Sin Blaché, right after this short break. Welcome back, everyone. We have two guests for our co-authoring show today, Sin Blaché and Helen McDonald. Sin is an author and musician. They have been writing horror and sci-fi stories all their life. Prophet is their first novel. Born in California, they live in the northwest of Ireland and can be found obsessing over obscure folk instruments, being an ambivalent savior to feral cats, and playing too many video games. Helen McDonald is a writer, poet, and naturalist. They are the author of the best-selling H's for Hawk, a memoir that I absolutely love, Helen. Also, Vesper Flights, along with Shaler's Fish, A History of Falconry, and two other books of poetry. They've written and presented award-winning TV documentaries for PBS and the BBC. Prophet is their first novel. Welcome, you two. Hi, thank you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we're thrilled. So, Online, we can find the basics of the story of the two of you. Helen, you approached Sin about co-writing what at the time you thought would be a novella. It's not that. Uh, you oh. had a mental image of an American diner in the middle of a sugar beet field and a premise about weaponizing memories. I also read that you wanted Sin to help with characters and dialogue. So I'm starting with you, Helen. Why Sin? And given your previous success with your other books, what made you think this novel uh, was a novella? And why should it be a co-authored venture? <laughs> These are all the $64,000 all in a row, aren't they? Yeah. There's like five of them. Uh, why Sin? Well, the, 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 you know, the very the first answer I can give you, the quick one, is is Sin's a genius. Why would you not want to work with Sin? In terms of the actual sort of uh, genesis of the project, um, during lockdown, yeah, I, I was meant to have gone off to Midway Atoll in the Pacific to write a big nature book about the end of the world, albatrosses in the U.S. Navy. And um, obviously I couldn't go, you know, the pandemic put have put paid to that. So I was kicking my heels and I was kind of miserable. I live on my own with, you know, I have Parrot, which is not the best company when you're living on your own. It's, it's a pretty good company, but not quite enough. And um, I ended up just talking to Sin a lot. We'd been friends for about a decade on Twitter and we had never met. In fact, we didn't meet until we'd nearly finished this book, which is, it just, it's unhinged. Um, <laughs> and we were just talking about all the stuff we loved. You know, I think what the pandemic did for me anyway was to, certainly was to to really kind of force me back into thinking about all the things that were important to me and had made me. And a lot of those things aren't natural history. I'd always been a sci-fi hound. I, you know, I grew up reading amazing magazines and all the Asimovs and Arthur C. Clarks and, you know, the, the Le Guin's and it had never really been part of what I was writing, but it was a deep, deep part of me. And we, Sid and I talked a lot about nostalgia, and um, that became the key to this novel. And yeah, I, I really did think it would be a novella because because I'm an idiot. I think there's no other <laughs> there's no other answer than that. Well, I don't know whether uh, it's about idiocy. I think that we were talking about um, 
genre a lot, like Helen is saying. And we uh, we both have read a lot of novellas and uh, little spy thrillers and and sci-fi short stories and things like that. And it just seemed like I bet it just seemed like a good idea. I said from the top that it wouldn't be a novella. It <laughs> it would be a lot more and um it is you know it is it's uh, huge <laughs> <laughs> um and we love it you know it's uh we're so proud of it it really did keep us going during the pandemic actually i i don't know i mean i it was such a joy the whole thing we'll talk about the writing of it but the joy of it um was really was just just kept me sane well, that's so good to hear. And, and I'm so interested on numerous levels about your relationship and how you came together to write together. And Sin, you know, uh, Helen just mentioned that you've been friends, online friends, though, for a decade. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just really curious when, when Helen approached you with this idea, curious what your initial thoughts were. And I also wanted to ask, you know, how Helen's previous literary success played into your thinking and considerations about what this book could or would be. Oh, I had... Uh... No clue, actually. I'd been <laughs> friends with uh, with Helen for years, yeah. Um, but I I knew Helen before Helen was a big deal, technically. Um, online, we spoke every so often, and uh, these these were the Doctor Who years. Yeah, the, <laughs> the the Doctor Who years, the all or nothing years. But yeah, no, we we spoke online about Doctor Who and sci fi, and that's it, you know. And we were just nerds online when um, when Ages for Hawk uh, became a thing. I you know, I, I, I didn't read it. I'm sorry, Helen. I didn't read it at the time. That's fine. And, um, <laughs> never, it's never bothered me that one. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and Helen was just, you know, my friend who's a writer and, um, and so years and years and years later, fast forward, and, uh, we're talking a lot during the pandemic. And when Helen asked me about this, I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. I mean, you know how it works. I've just been writing for fun, for myself, for my friends, uh, for years. And, uh, and it, it would be great, I think, for the both of us to do this. And, and it was, it was a blast. I'm going to jump in here because of course the, 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 the irony of this is, you know, I had this big profile. I was this, you know, big shot writer, blah, blah, blah. You know, I had no experience of writing in a collaborative way, you know, and Sin had. So in this regard, you know, you know, Sin was way ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like a perfect match. And I wanted to go back to what you said about this getting you through the pandemic. And I'm curious, because I read somewhere that you said it was at least for escapist entertainment. Could this book have happened without the pandemic? I don't think so. No, I don't think so for an enormous number of reasons. And one of them is I don't think I'd have been talking as much with you, Sin, yeah. if the pandemic hadn't happened. So that that's, you know, already... <laughs> That's already a no. Yeah, we were locked in our computers. We were locked in our computers. We were locked in front of um, TV screens and we were reaching out. And so the the conversations that we had over lockdown were born of lockdown. It wasn't just uh, the friendship that we had beforehand. It was us trying to build a fiction um, during that time. I mean, we wanted it to, be, it to be political. I think that's yeah. something, you know, we wanted the book to be fun. We wanted it to be a big romance. We wanted it to be, you know, we wanted all the genres. We wanted to just push all the tropes there were into one book. But <laughs> it's a political book. And I think, you know, we were talking a lot about, you know, the way that 
populism and both sides of the Atlantic was relying on on um, nostalgia. I mean, it always has relied on nostalgia. You know, I remember sort of, you know, again, sort of Reagan using nostalgia quite often as a kind of uh, a sort of rallying call. Um, but it seemed to have achieved this kind of new strength and power. And, and then we looked at, you know, we looked at Hollywood recycling IP. We looked at, you know, and I, I think I'm going to go off on my own little sort of thing here, but <laughs> I just feel that at this point, you know, we're, we have the environmental sort of calamity happening, this total meltdown. We have a sense that, um, you know, everything is getting worse and worse all around us all the time. It's very hard to imagine a livable future. So we're all cast back upon upon memories of the past. And that's what's being recruited politically and, and, and in terms of the marketplace. So I think we we wanted to write about nostalgia partly because of the pandemic. It, it gave us a chance to think about where we were. But also after every, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of famously the case that nostalgia really blossoms and blooms after huge cultural dislocations. And we could kind of feel it already happening at that point. Well, Sin, um, I want to mention uh, before we came on air, you and I were having a great conversation about your, your early days and your current days of, of participating in NaNoWriMo. And I just want listeners to know that you've been participating since 2009. Yeah. So you're, you're a true veteran. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very curious if you, could, if you could share, you know, how your experience as a NaNoWriMo writer uh, perhaps influenced the writing of Profit. I think that it, it helped me to understand how I write and, uh, and what helps and what doesn't. And, you know, um, the everyday writing is really what matters in the end. And that's something that I had to reckon with the first couple of years, Uh, I think 2009 to 2011, was something that I had to uh, grapple with um, the everyday writing and, and not worrying about quality and worrying about um, just, uh, just getting it done. But after after Nano and outside of November or Camp Nano or any of those months, outside of that, when you don't have the time constraint and when you give yourself the chance to edit as you're writing and to care about the words that you're putting down, and it's not just about the numbers, months of not of only caring about the numbers means that once you turn your brain back onto it. It's mindful. You really notice the things that you're doing. And I think that that's, that's a strength that you get from the exercise from NaNoWriMo. That's a great plug for all of you listeners who are thinking about doing it because uh, we're airing in October with NaNoWriMo staring us down. Writing is so isolating. Some people love that about it, of course, and then really struggle when marketing and publicity has to happen. But obviously, co-writing is such a different experience. And I was wondering if each of you could speak to some of the magic of it and how you would characterize it as different from your solo pursuits. Oh, I don't know where to start. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot less kind of, you know, terrible, fake 19th century romantic weeping under my desk, (laughs) I think. Um, I think the the... One of my particular uh, things about the collaboration, which I've only really just sort of worked out actually, is to do with us both writing the same characters. So the two characters in this book, um, Rao and Adam, are, you know, a kind of co-creation of our minds, but we both wrote both of them. 
And of course, there's going to be a gap between my understanding of Rao and, and Sin's understanding of Rao. There's always going to be a slight difference there. And I, I became to understand that, that that sort of charge difference between our, our notions of our own characters was really beautiful. Um, it made the characters on the page feel a lot more human, a lot more complex. They're buoyed with contradictions. And and um, that was something that was a real surprise to me and, and, and a great joy because they, they really do feel terrifyingly alive actually we can't get rid of them you know we're constantly <laughs> coming up with new lines for these boys and that was a surprise that was a real surprise and there's the joy of writing together I mean one of the th- one of the you know the mechanics of it is that you know there are days when I find it really hard to write you know I, I sort of lounge around the place and, and and feel very sorry for myself and you know all the book's not going anywhere you know nothing's happening and then suddenly out of nowhere you know 3,000 words would arrive on my desktop and that would be sin and sin would be had been working while I was, you know, feeling sorry for myself. <laughs> and the fact that new work had arrived, had had appeared like that, was often a springboard for a very intense um, writing session. So that itself, I think, was a, was always a miracle. And it was fun. It was the most fun I've ever had writing. A lot of the time, I honestly felt that it was probably illegal, what we were doing, because it was way uh-huh. too much fun to be writing. Yeah, I think that the main point was the the back and forth. When it comes to collaborative writing, that's the main one, right? So you can have a day off. You can give yourself a break. You can feel really sorry for yourself. I had those days too, and like Helen would be writing up a storm. It would be crazy. And there's the days that we're both on, and they're amazing. It's exactly what you said, Brooke. It's magic. And, um, and we actually, you know, to talk about the, uh, the publicity of it and doing it as a team, we mentioned this to, um, our, our UK publishers, you know, you, you have all these authors who, you know, their whole job is to sit in the room by themselves with their minds and get these, uh, images and people and stories out and they don't talk to anyone for, for a very long time, except their editors or, you know, stuff like that. And then you put them on podcasts and you put them in <laughs> front of crowds and they have to, uh, they have to perform. How does that work? You know? And, uh, and our publishers are like, yeah, that's, it's always kind of nerve, <laughs> nerve wracking, <laughs> but, um, but we're lucky because there's the two of us and, uh, and we can go back and forth. We can answer each other's questions. We can yeah. uh, make jokes. We 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 call it the double act. It's like Abbott and Costello, but it's fun. It's a blast every single time. We do have a lot of fun with audiences, actually. Yeah. Although occasionally there are these moments where I realize we're slipping away from the audience and just having a chat about something. <laughs> it's slightly nerve-wracking. It's just us on stage, just uh, <laughs> just chatting. The thing that also I I you know I think. If, if people have read about this this book's genesis that was really fun is that this book really was written pretty much entirely through private messages and social media, which, you know, um, I didn't think was possible until we did it, but it is. So there we are. I think that's so cool. And I've, I've done that on a smaller scale with people. And I'm, I'm always intrigued by the collaborative process and, and kind of just the way you guys are characterizing it, how you are creating a whole 
like a whole new work that's different than yourself, right? It's not yeah. just your own work. You are melding with somebody else's mind and creating something new. And and Helen, I think uh, I read that this book is a real departure for you, but 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 it, but it, but it, it shares a lot of the themes that you've circled in your past books, like yeah. love, loss, hope, and in your words, the way we recruit the past for our own ends, which I think is such an interesting way to think about the past. And so I'm just curious about how that part of yourself played out and if it was important for these themes to be surfaced or, or is this just uh, an innate part of what you're drawn to write? Well, I mean, I don't I remember reading a, a wonderful article in a philosophy magazine. I think it was in mind many years ago and it was basically a kind of slightly jokey article, which was very unusual for mine. And it was about how to make it as a philosopher. And it said, you know, there are many ways you can do it, but one of the things is just to just to bang on about the same old stuff year after year, <laughs> you know. And like, you know, I sort of think of J.G. Ballard, who wrote the same book, you know, a million times, and they're all amazing. So, I mean, I'm not ashamed of the fact that, you know, those things that I return to in Profit with Sin, are, there's certainly commonalities with with the nature writing. But nature writing is such a peculiar genre. And I tried when I was writing H.S. for Hawk and Vesper Flights to kind of get away from that distant, reserved sort of 19th century, originary, often very male voice, you know, of, aren't you lucky to have me to explain this to you, which is, you know, I love that nature writing, but I didn't want to do that. So there's a lot of swearing in my nature writing, a lot of jokes. And I think having a sort of sense that I could find a voice that was more my own in nature writing and, 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 and sort of less authoritative in that kind of um, rather musty old way. That was a kind of way into sci-fi, you know, it was, it was something I'd always wanted to write. I wasn't sure if I could be a novelist. Uh, I didn't know if I could, um, I didn't know if I had the skills to do that. And I don't think I do. You know, when I started this book, I, I couldn't write dialogue for Toffee, you know, I, I really was very bad at it. And, you know, I learned an enormous amount from, from Sin. And, and by the end, you know, I was, I was putting up, you know, writing quite long stretches of dialogue and I was pretty good at it, except for the American um, register, which I was. Yeah, the, the American dialogue. That's why I'm here. <laughs> it's so great. I mean, I love the collaboration of the two cultures as well. I mean, there's a lot of American stuff in there, but yeah, it, yeah, it reads so seamlessly. Well, I, I do want to go back to nostalgia and Helen, you mentioned you know, why nostalgia and how it kind of creeps into the culture, uh, especially in moments like we've been living through. Uh, so thank you for seeding that because I, I wanted to ask you, Sin, about your relationship to nostalgia. Um, and did you have fiction inspirations for this novel when you started it, when Helen came to you? <laughs> like, was this just an automatic yes for you? I mean, I'm guessing you guys already had this, you know, this dialogue going online, like you said. Oh, we uh, we had some ideas. We we wanted to play around with uh, with like odd couple tropes, you know, like every every single um, every single piece of media that we knew and loved had these uh, these two guys essentially that um, sometimes not guys, sometimes it's Mulder and Scully, but you know they they were always at odds. They were always um, pitted against each other. Uh, personality wise and um and there was always the uh you know the hint that they they're more than friends and stuff like that you know <laughs> and we didn't want it to be a hint yeah we got bored with the hints we're sick of it <laughs> let's just get it right out there you know you like, know and the and ernie that, and burt's of the world yeah exactly the ernie and burt's <laughs> or you know the um i don't know the 
the Sherlock and Watsons and, <laughs> and everything else, you know, everything else. We keep on finding more of them. You know, we keep on saying uh, Hamlet and Horatio is a great one, but... That really upsets audiences. No! <laughs> no, not them. <laughs> but let's be real. And we wanted to we wanted to do our own version of that. And we were already talking about that. Uh, so it was, it was an automatic yes, absolutely. Um, but as for my... Uh, my relationship with nostalgia, it's complicated because I, um, uh, as a child, I moved around a lot. I moved back and forth from, uh, either LA to San Francisco or San Francisco to LA. And then, um, from LA to Dublin and back again, and then back again. And so this makes it, um, difficult to hold on to things. Uh, but you hold on to places, you hold on to people. And, um, and so a personal uh, relationship with nostalgia is weird because uh, I have things from those times, but every single time you move, you change the person that you are. So the nostalgia is really for the person who had the thing then, you know? So yeah, my relationship, my personal relationship is complicated. However, my view on cultural and social and political nostalgia is... Uh, it's pretty straightforward, I think. I think that it's uh, it's fascinating, really, at the the very core of it, how not just politicians but media uses nostalgia to get us to do things. The Facebook clicks, yeah, the engagement mm -hmm. clicks, yeah, and not just that, but like before, it was you know a, a big online push for politicians to use uh, nostalgia. We were still clicking through on memes from the 90s and the 80s and do you remember this and the golden hour and everything else it's it's always feeding into you know when things were better and things were never better they were just different well they were they were often better if you were white a <laughs> white dude. Oh, you were a white dude. I mean this is one of the things that that we've found quite interesting is you know sometimes we've we've talked about how you know this this for example you know the sort of ways that the 50s were being kind of recruited by the kind of Reagan era for, for, for nostalgic political purposes. Right. And we've had some kickback, you know, people sort of saying, no, I was there. It was great. I had a great time in the fifties. And we're like, well, yeah, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think that was one of the reasons you wanted, I mean, we just always wanted the book to be really diverse, but like, you know, um, who gets, who gets to define what nostalgia is. And there's lots of really interesting work on nostalgia and, and immigrant communities and how, first-generation immigrants often refuse nostalgia completely. It's a trap. Um, and that really fed into our, our book. Um, and second-generation very often get, can get quite lost in nostalgia, this notion of a home that's, that was just there that they, that they never you know, experienced as, as children. So it's such a, it, it, it touches on so many aspects of kind of the, oh, God, I'm going to use the word modern condition, but it seems really <laughs> urgent to, to talk about. And talking about sin as well, it's, it's, it's hysterically awful. Like, you know, we, we go to America and, um, you know, I, I've got this sort of very naive nostalgic notion of what nostalgia is and sins is phenomenally sophisticated and marked by an enormously complex life. And, you know, when we landed the first time, I remember pointing out like a fire hydrant by the side of the runway going, look, <laughs> sin, look, it's American. Sin's like... <laughs> Yeah. And in many, in many, in many ways, you know, I, we do laugh about it, but, uh, there is more row in me than Adam. And, um, and I think, I think, yeah, that I'm the excitable one here. <laughs> Love that.
This is going to sound odd, but I hate to leave nostalgia behind right now. I really want to just stay with the topic of nostalgia because you guys have so many interesting thoughts. But in closing, we're just about to embark on National Novel Writing Month. And one thing that always charms me about it is how more and more people work together on a novel and co-author a novel. Yet at the same time, that that's a pretty rare thing and a pretty challenging thing. So I'm curious if you could each impart one tip or insight you would share with our listeners about co-authoring. Okay, who goes first? <laughs> you, you go first. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking of a million different things I could say, but you should go first then. <laughs> um, agree at the start what you're going to write. It's going to change, but at the start, at least agree on the starting line. Yeah. Uh, and that's not what I mean. I don't mean by the book's first line. I mean, this is the road that you're walking together. You need to know exactly where you're starting. You have to start at the exact same time together mentally. And that's what informs the rest of the piece, essentially. That's at least for me. When we started, we talked a lot about characters and what we wanted um, to write about and what we thought was going to be um, really compelling and the ultimate plot. And, you know, we were really excited, but um, it didn't start until both of us went, okay, let's go. It's now. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to agree uh, when, when is the start? Because I think that a lot of uh, like writing advice uh, puts a lot of emphasis on the first line. And so if you're co-writing, that feels like that has to be one or the other. And it can be a joint effort. It can be both of you starting together mindfully. Oh, what's mine? Well, I'm going to just put, you know, again, be deeply, deeply embarrassing here. I mean, I think my, my main, the main thing I learned, um, apart from how much fun writing can be, was how vulnerable you need to be to do a good collaboration. I mean, I, you know, you need to take down all those walls and there were a couple of times early on and, you know, I laugh about them now and I hope Sin laughs about it too, but, you know, I, I, we would edit as we went, we'd like send stuff backwards and forwards to each other and, you know, we'd rewrite and rewrite. And now it's very hard for us to tell who wrote what, which is a lovely thing. We, we constantly, you know, with the, the best bits of the book, we're always assuming the other, the other person wrote. You're definitely Helen's. Definitely Sin's. So, <laughs> <laughs> but early on, yeah, I mean, I'd send something to Sin and then Sin would, you know, have notes. And, you know, I swear I shouldn't, but I, I, I was there going, I've won awards. <laughs> how dare this person tell me how to write? You know, and I had to get rid of that vanity, which was incredibly unhelpful and, um, and really learn to just, you know, be really vulnerable and say, ouch, that hurt. I don't like that. I don't like that you said that, which is very, very unusual for me because I am a very solitary writer. And I, I think, you know, it, it not only made the book work really well but I think it also you know it really sort of sharpened and deepened soon my friendship as well not just as collaborators being that vulnerable with each other was you know something which is very scary so I think my advice would be you know find a really good trustworthy collaborator <laughs> and and you know just be brave yeah be brave with them hmm. well and it sounds also like being willing to see your own flaws and defenses along the way. Oh, so. so many, so many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's so generous of you and, and helpful. Both of you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm super inspired and I now want to co-author a book. So. Yay! <laughs> it's been a delight. Thank you so much for inviting us on. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Well, Grant, I spend a lot of time thinking about book titles uh, at She Writes Press and Spark Press. We retitle more than half of the books that we publish each season. And so I don't know why, but seeing this title of Helen and Sin's book, Profit, uh, as opposed to even just The Profit, got me thinking about how book publishing loves a good one word title. <laughs> so yeah. I thought this could be a good trend, especially since even if you have a work in progress, it's good to have a working title and titles are a level of importance to books on par with naming your kid. <laughs> uh, you know, they truly make a difference when it comes to sales and readers. So do you give much thought to titling yourself? And do you feel like a good one word title grabs your attention more than something like, say, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius or the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime? It is hard to rewrite those titles, I must say, <laughs> <laughs> especially into one word. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. Titles make an enormous difference. And sometimes I think, um, you know, I should spend more time kind of consciously thinking about my title. Sometimes the working title becomes the title. That's, it's kind of dangerous. And there's, you know, the old saying, you can't judge a book by its cover. And, and that's definitely true. But but we do judge a book by its title. And I always like to tell the story about how F. Scott Fitzgerald's original title for The Great Gatsby was Tremolchio in West Egg. Um, <laughs> Thank and, God they didn't keep that. Yeah, and his editor very wisely changed it. Uh, but I don't think it would, would have been a great American novel with that title. And I remember when, you know, it's funny you mentioned one-word titles because I remember when I first became aware of one-word titles and it was with my first novel, which I was struggling to name. And I was querying agents, and I talked to somebody who pointed out that there was a trend of one-word titles back then. This was the mid-90s. And, and I thought it was an entirely new thing. Like, there hadn't been books with one-word titles before then. And I don't know if that's true. I'm not a historian of titles. But I began to think of one-word titles for my novel, and I ended up calling it Shelter. And then I, without thinking about it too much, I titled my collection of 100-word stories Fissures. Um, but yeah, I wasn't in conscious of using just one word, but it, but it makes sense since the book was about brevity in a lot of ways. The thing about trends, though, is that sometimes the opposite is true. Like, I think we could easily do the same trend with long titles, and that's in part because book publishing is an industry that can have parallel trends going on at the same time, and especially these days with so many books being published. And one thing that's cool about this trend, though, is the number of... I love reading the book lists. Like, there's a there's a book list on, on Book Riot about one-word titles. There's a hundred of them. And so... I picked a few of them that I liked. Um, Inheritance by Lan Samantha Chang, who we had on this show. Uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison, who we, we, we will invite on the show when we do some time travel. <laughs> it by Stephen King. I mean, that's so uh, menacing. And Neuromancer by William Gibson, I think, is so descriptive of what that novel is all about. Mm, yeah, those lists are fun. And the longer titles, I think, can actually be harder to come upon because they have to be more clever, I think, mm -hmm. where the one word titles are, I think, just meant to evoke a feeling or, yeah, it's like an energy. Uh, I'm thinking about the memoirs I love with one word titles, wild, heavy, interestingly, uh, also Inheritance, but the Danny Shapiro memoir, not the Lance Samantha Chang mm. uh, novel. 
Salido, to name a few. And what I really like about the one word titles is the freedom that they give to book designers to feature the title in such a way. And so listeners, I do encourage you, especially if you're on the road to publication, to pay attention to book covers and the way that titles look on the page, fall on the page, how they're treated. Uh, It's just a good awareness, especially since there are a lot of writers, you know, who have working titles that they're not settled on. And then oftentimes when a book lands with a publisher, there's always the possibility of being retitled. Uh, Grant, I'm curious, have you ever had any of your books retitled or have you always landed on something that your publishers liked? I've had a friend who had her book retitled and um, she still doesn't like the new title. So <laughs> uh, titles are very important. And I've never had a book retitled by a publisher, but I've, but I've had my titles kind of massaged and rejiggered by by the agents I've worked with and especially the subtitles. And, I, and this is with nonfiction books. And I have to say subtitle tweaking is sometimes about plugging in words for discoverability with nonfiction. So... I have mixed feelings about that. Yeah, I have yet to have a one-word book title myself. Uh, mine are three to four words, like "Greenlight your book," "Write on sisters," "What's your book?" So I'm going to consider the one-word title for the memoir I'm working on right now. My working title is a Patty Smith lyric. Here I go, and I don't know why. <laughs> uh, and it's not going to be the title of my book, but it sort of speaks to the mindset of the late 20s girl I was, and it also sometimes captures how I feel about writing this memoir. So uh, maybe it's time to find something a little bit more encouraging. Yeah, I like the title, though. It's very, uh, you know, very evocative, put it that way, and and a little (laughs) bit provocative. So I guess that's the crux of titles. They resonate in different ways with people, and they're worth uh, thinking about as a result. Um, And sometimes I want to say that titles are the last words written on a book. So listeners, we want to be here with you from word one to the end or to the last revision of your title, if need be. So so please keep tuning in. Please tell your friends about Right Minded to expand our conversation and keep listening to the very, very end of this podcast to the very last word, which is when I say to Brooke, hey, that was great. I'm going to get a snack and a cup of coffee and I'll be right back to record the next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody.